morning, church. I thought a little levity on the front would kind of help us deal with the topic that we're going to deal with today, so I'll provide a little more for my own life. Uh, the only thing that I can really offer in defense was that the football game was already on, and we had had a rough day at church, and I just wanted to sit down and relax. Um, I didn't really have time for this dirty diaper, much less this dirty cloth diaper that I was currently washing out in the toilet. I mean, let's just be honest. If you had to place these two actions side by side, how many of you would really choose washing out the poopy diaper over watching the game? If you would choose the, the diaper, I really don't know what to tell you, okay? And I'm not really making an excuse. I'm just trying to get you into my mindset as I was impatiently scrubbing at Clay's diaper and wondering why I hadn't lobbied for us to just stick with disposables. And so it was that impatience and grumbling that led me to be careless. And it was that carelessness that made me lose my balance and rock forward too fast. And it was that going too fast and being off balance that made me have to thrust my hand out to stop myself. And it was me moving forward and thrusting my hand too far that made me put my hand through the toilet tank instead of balancing on the toilet tank. And it was me putting my hand through the toilet tank that then made all of the water from the toilet tank go all over the floor of the bathroom. And it was the fact that it's all over the floor and it's taken me a couple of minutes to get the water turned off because, of course, when the water level comes down, it just is going to start shooting water because that's what it's supposed to do to fill up the toilet tank. That gets the floor entirely covered. And it's me not being able to mop all that stuff up fast enough that helps it find the lowest place possible, which is a seam that nobody noticed where they failed to finish all the grouting in the, in the, uh, in the, in the bathroom when the tile was redone. And it was that little seam that allowed it to move down through all of the insulation and into the drywall in my garage, which was underneath the bathroom, which in turn was how I spent my afternoon replacing the insulation and drywall in my garage rather than the game, which I really wanted to watch. I'm sure we're all familiar with the domino effect, right? It's when that one seemingly insignificant action triggers a sequence of numerous other actions. Sometimes it's a good thing. A lot of times it's a not good thing, but you end up with a very significant impact or change that you were not ready for. And uh, there's even this theoretical law about it, the metaphysics of the law of unintended consequences, right? Um, and uh, and, and it simply put, it's while you can do your best to predict the efforts and the effect of an action, uh, there is no absolute surety that any action taken will not produce an effect of an action that you did not intend or did not foresee happening. Um, and then some disciplines of science like mathematics, this is a highly contested law, but I think in the science of life, I would call this a pretty sure thing. Um, in the science of life, uh, it's a pretty good rule of thumb. You plan, you act, and there's no denying the possibility for things to go sideways, even when you put your best efforts forward, right? I'm sure each of us can relate. You, 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 you do this thing, you take that risk, it's hopefully going to be just fine, and then, oh boy, here come the consequences, right? Now, I'm using humor this morning to try and keep things light, but the reality is today we're diving into some fairly dark narrative in the story, okay? Um, not only is this content solidly 14A, um, 
I would use PG-13, but that doesn't always translate real well. Um, I don't know. Like, do they have PG-13 here? A little bit? Okay, yeah. I, I, when I look at that, the titles are different for U.S. than, you know, like what the rating system is and everything. But, but it's, a little, it's a little sketchy, okay? And, and, and the Bible doesn't pull a whole lot of punches right now. But the implications are also staggering for the lower story of David and the story of the kingdom of Israel for hundreds of years to come. See, because when we are talking about silly mistakes, the domino effect is often something frustrating but temporary. And we might even be able to laugh about it in a few weeks or a few months or a few years, depending on the severity of it you know, and how, how deeply it hits you. But... When humanity engages in moral failure, when we engage in sin, now then the story today makes it clear that the law of unintended consequences, not only is it in full effect there, but the implications are going to be greater and they are going to be further spread than we can possibly imagine. And it's not an easy reading today. You know, like, <laughs> you know, I, I heard the murmurings all around. is like, you know, we're reading and it's like the word of the Lord. And we're like, oh, great. That made me feel better. Um... It's not an easy reading that we're going to get into today, but I think it's an important reading because it's important. And I think, again, the, the, the tagline that was on that commercial is when humanity is at its worst, we're at our best. And I know they're talking about an insurance company, but I think the thing that we need to keep in mind, even as we're delving into this very, very dark, very, very real piece of not just history, but the way that humanity works, we also have to keep in mind that when we are at our worst as humans, God is at his best. And we're going to still see God at his best, even as he's having to do some very, very, very difficult things. Okay? So our story picks up, and, and the rise of David last week that we looked at to the throne of Israel is this epic that is ordained by God alone. If you remember from last week, the only qualifier for David to even become king is that he is anointed and he is empowered by the Spirit of God. And when we see David in the first few years of his kingship in the beginning chapters of 2 Samuel, he appears to have a great clarity about this fact that everything he has, every title that he has been elected or appointed to, all the power that he wields, any material things that he have, any relationships that he has been given, all of that has been bestowed rather than earned. He doesn't have claim to any of it, save that God has given it to him. Okay? David is Yahweh's man, plain and simple. Made by him, anointed by him, empowered by him, placed on the throne of Israel in order to be his king. And he gets that. At least at the beginning, he gets that. He is supposed to act in step with God. And if that means dancing in your underwear to celebrate the ascension of God's ark into Jerusalem, go for it. Okay? Be undignified for God's sake. If that means taking the son of the man who repeatedly tried to kill you in your house as your own son, and you restore all of his family lands and all of the family business to him, and you forgive him and you give him a spot to eat at the king's table with you for the rest of his life, be generous. Be forgiving for God's sake. Do that. If that means while other kings are interested in building their own elaborate palaces, you're enamored with the idea of building Yahweh a lavish house, put your plans to him. 
David seems to be hitting his stride as God's representative in the first few chapters of Israel. And we're cheering him on because it just seems like whatever it is that he puts his hand to, it succeeds. And it succeeds magnificently. And God loves it because he's finally working in concert with somebody that's, that their heart is actually after him. And it even leads to this point where when, when David's looking around and going like, I really, you're living in a tent. We can do better than this for you. And God kind of, I mean, it's not modesty, but God goes like, like, don't worry about me, okay? Like, I created the entire universe. If I wanted a big house, I could make a big house for myself. That's not the big deal. But I really, really appreciate that you are thinking about me above you and that you've been doing that consistently. And so instead of you building me a house, God kind of does a play on words. Instead of you building me a house, I'm going to build you a house. And it's going to be a house of rulership. It's a, it's a, I'm going I'm to build you a house of dynasty. And I'm going to make you a promise that as long as there is a kingdom of, as long as there is a kingdom of Judah, one of your descendants is never going to fail to sit on the throne. It's an amazing promise with some staggering implications. Because if you think about it, I mean, I, like most ancient times, the, the, the dynasty is, is a very elusive thing. It's, it's really hard to get a grip on. Um, it, it, even if you look at it for, even if you look at it in, in our more middle age and, and, you know, modern times, the, the dynasty is, is kind of always in flux and you never really know uh, how that's going to work and who's going to be king and, and, and if a dynasty is going to fail by war or by being taken over or just by failure of nerve of the leadership or, or whatever, Okay. It's always a very elusive thing to think that there will be a rule of succession, stability of succession. Um, and, and it's one of the greatest promises that, like, David, my relationship with you as my king, as, as my guy on the throne of Israel, that's even going to outlast your life. It's going to go to your descendants. It's an amazing gift. It's an amazing promise. And while it's an amazing promise, I, I wonder if it does something to David. I'm not sure, but, but as amazing as this covenant is, it heralds the start of a change in the narrative for us. The rise of David is done. He's established on the throne for life, and his descendants are going to continue in that path. And the underlying question is, well, what else is there to strive for then? What else is there to push for? And I think maybe even though, and, and, and I'm not saying this has anything to do with God. I'm think, I think more it just has to do with how David receives this promise. He kind of receives it and you almost get the idea of, I've arrived. I've arrived. The kingship is secure. The throne is secure. Everything's good. Oh, I can relax. And I think that's where the problem starts. I really don't think the problem starts on the rooftop where he's looking out and, and seeing Bathsheba. I don't think the problem is when he keeps looking. I don't think the problem is when he finally decides to take it from his eyes into his heart, into his you know, mind and his heart, and finally into his loins, you know, and that whole path, right? I think, it's, I think that the problem starts when David stops striving, when he gets relaxed, when he gets comfortable, when he says, huh, I've arrived. And I just pitched that idea out there to us. How many times, if we can really, really trace back the, 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 
where temptation starts to get its roots into us, how many times does it start? Not when we're actually faced with the temptation, but when we kind of relax and kind of put it on autopilot and say, ah, we've arrived. Things are going good. We're disciples. It's all good. We're happy. We're living good. We're being good. God wants us to be good. God wants us to feel good. All that stuff's happening. Great, we can just kind of roll this way. We, our, our relationship with God is a, is a living organism. We are living organisms, and, 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 and churches are living organisms, and the body of Christ is a living organism. And one of the things I know about living organisms is that if we're not growing, we are dying. You know? If we are not replicating cells faster than we're losing them, we're in trouble, okay? There is no autopilot. You're either growing or you're dying. And I don't know exactly when it happens here, but something starts to kind of cool in David. He begins to relax. He begins to be comfortable. And, and the first verse of the narrative kind of says this, is, is in the spring when kings go off to war, first verse of chapter 11 of Second Samuel, the time when you're supposed to go out and protect and, and move forward and, and, and strive again. David chooses not to strive. David chooses to send somebody else to strive in his place. He sends Joab, his second in command, out there ahead of him, and he decides to stay at home. He decides to just kind of relax and enjoy his status as king for a little while. And somehow that starts to dull his identity. He starts to forget about being Yahweh's man, and he starts becoming his own man. That prophetic identity starts becoming replaced with a royal identity, much like it went with Saul. The dominoes kind of start getting set up before David even realizes it, and all it takes is for the first one to topple, and it finally does on that rooftop one mild spring evening when kings are supposed to be out leading battles, but a complacent king chooses to stay home, and then he watches a woman who isn't his wife taking a bath. See, now at our first read of it, we might be tempted to think that the story of David and Bathsheba is a story about sexual immorality. And it is, but that's just the beginning of it. When David sees her bathing on the rooftop, he's not merely lusting, he's coveting. The narration makes it startlingly clear. Any identification she has in the narrative, Bathsheba, is linked to being the wife of Uriah the Hittite. She cannot, should not, be associated with with anybody else, ever. But David wants her. And the verbs are really quick and explosive if you read the story. Okay, much like David's emotions. It's quick, it's explosive. He sends, he takes, he lays, she returns, she conceives, she sends word. It just goes... Much like a lot of our actions do when we get broadsided by temptation, right? We just kind of we just kind of act and it just happens. And before we know it, we're dealing with consequences. And we think the big no-no is that he lays with her, but that's actually just the follow-through. See, the critical the critical misstep here, the critical verb is he takes her. He takes her. Samuel warned Israel back in 1 Samuel 8 that kings tend to be takers and not givers. And while David has given much to Israel, everything that he has and is has been given to him by Yahweh alone, and yet now he decides he's entitled 
to take a little bit. And in doing so, he steps outside the identity that God has for him. And like Saul, he ends up moving into an identity where he's his own king rather than being God's king. He embraces this royal identity rather than this prophetic identity of what a king is supposed to be about. And that's the beginning of the sin at the heart of the story, the assumption of moral authority by David to assume that despite being God's anointed, or maybe even worse, assuming that because he's God's anointed, he's allowed to be his own king as well. And see, the pregnancy is just kind of the first domino to fall, isn't it? David's entire army is at war with the Ammonites. But the king's battle for the time being, and even for the rest of his kingship, is going to be struggling against the consequences of this moral failure. It's going to go for the rest of his life. Think of the casualties that follow. Uriah, the husband, he's enticed with an easy cover-up of extended leave, in which David hopes that he's going to go spend time with his wife and then, you know, kind of cover things up, right? And it'll just kind of go away. And it doesn't go away. It's amazing to me. Uriah's a Hittite. He's a Canaanite. He doesn't even... He's, he's not even under the law, man. He's not even under the promise of God. And he's acting with more integrity than the king. He's like, how could I go when, 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 when the ark of God and God's people and what God's up to is over here? How could I just like go my own way over here? That doesn't make any sense, David. You almost kind of wonder, how, how much does Uriah actually know about what's going on? Does he know a little bit about, about what's going on? but he's still the king's man, even when the king is not God's man. Very, very interesting thing in the narrative there, right? But it doesn't go away. And that doesn't work. And more extreme measures have to be taken. And Joab, David's second in command, is implicated in a murder following orders to get Uriah killed on the battlefield when he maintains his integrity and he won't go to his wife. Numerous other soldiers lose their lives on the battlefield in order to silence Uriah as well. But fortunately, he's dead. Secrets contained. Life goes on for the king, right? Not even close. Yahweh sees. Yahweh knows. And the story makes it clear that the reckoning is coming. Now, I can't imagine what it would be like to be Nathan. Okay, he's been David's associate for quite a while now. Okay, maybe even a trusted associate. Maybe even kind of a friend. While still speaking for God, it's been very, very easy to be a friend because every time he speaks for God, it's right in line with where David's going. And it's like, yes, yes, yes. And, and, and you, you know, you have this relationship that's forged on two people going in the same direction of God, even though they're, 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 they're kind of two sides of the same coin. One's being the prophet and the other one's being the king, but they're acting in line with each other. And now all of a sudden you have this relationship and this friendship. And now Nathan has got to bring this word that is just devastating but it's true and he's got to bring it I think Nathan probably assumed that he might be going to his death when he brought this message because you don't know how you don't know how calloused the heart of the king has become especially when you got to deliver a message like this right he's already I mean he's obviously already killed people to cover this up if I come and say the Lord told me, he's going to be like, great, Lord told me, you're going to die. Okay? He could very well be going to his death, and he brings this anyway, right? And so he crafts the best possible way to ensnare David with the truth. 
He tells a story that calls up those qualities that Yahweh chose in David from the beginning. The shepherd, the passionate worshiper, the staunch defender of what is right. And the the words of Nathan have their intended effect. And the cynicism of David's heart shatters and is enraged with this appalling callousness of the rich man. The king, who is used to being judicial and passing verdict and sentence, he passes verdict and sentence right there. Death is in order. Reparations will be made. No questions. And now all the verbal finesse goes away, and the velvet comes off the sledgehammer, and Nathan swings as hard as he possibly can right for the heart and says, you are that man. And Yahweh sees, and your verdict is correct, death is in order. Reparations will be made. One of the toughest questions we've got to deal with in this story is this. How on earth can David still be God's man and act this way? How can he be called a man after God's heart and act like this? For a lot of people, that's a deal breaker. They're like, either, 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 either it's a lie in scripture to try and like pump David up as the king, or God doesn't know what he's talking about when he says a man after my heart. And I want to kind of, I want to explore that with us because it's a tough question, but, but it's one we need to answer. And, and the Bible doesn't pull any punches with his actions, church. They are as detestable and offensive to God as any sin ever in the history of humanity. Okay? God does not pull punches with him or give him a free pass because he's king. If anything, God deals with him more directly because he's the king, right? But it also begs us to ask this. Why doesn't God deal with David like he deals with Saul? On the one hand, I think it directly deals with the fact that God's faithful to his promises, all of them. And God has already promised to secure David's claim to the throne for his life and the life of his descendants. He's not going to break his word just because David broke his word. He's not going to stop being for David just because David stopped being for God. He's never done that with any of humanity. Why would he choose to do that with David? But I also think a significant difference is in David's understanding of what it means to repent. Both Saul and David knew they were sinning. The difference is, is when they were confronted with the truth, they act completely different. If you read in 1 Samuel, Saul gets confronted with the truth by Samuel. The first thing he does is he tries to make excuses. He tries to point the finger somewhere else. He tries to say, well, everybody was going to leave if I didn't do this. Or, 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 well, but I'm bringing these sacrifices to God. I'm, you know, I'm honoring God. I'm just, I'm doing this. Everything was about, everything was about trying to minimize what he was doing. Everything was about trying to shift blame. Everything was about trying to exonerate himself. Nothing was about just receiving the truth and letting it work on him. And the only time we ever see Saul going, I've sinned, I've sinned, I've sinned against the Lord is after God has already said, I'm, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. And then Saul goes, okay, all right, I've sinned. Let's, what can we do to make this right? And God's like, you don't get it, man. You don't, you don't get it. You won't turn to me. You won't turn to me unless I turn away from you. That, that's, not, that's not repentance. That's not repentance. 
You know, I mean, like, like, I mean, how many of you, like, are parents who have kids who, like, you know, they, they, they keep pushing at you until you, like, lay the law down. And then it's like, okay, I'm sorry. What can we do to fix this? And you're like, no. No, 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 no. We already, we've already given the verdict. It's too late. And see, while that's what Saul does, what David does is David immediately, immediately takes it. He doesn't try to deny it. He doesn't try to minimize it. I, I think he even puts it in the right place. I mean, you know, it, it would be easy to say, you're right, I've, I've, sinned against, I've sinned against Bathsheba. I've sinned against Uriah. I've sinned against Joab. I've sinned against all those innocent soldiers that I let die to cover things up. I've, I've sinned against this illegitimate son. I mean, he could have named all of these people, and he knows that he sinned against that, but the root of it all is that he sinned against God because he decided to set himself up as his own king of his own life rather than letting God be the king of his life. And he nails it. He nails where the heart of it is. I've sinned against you, Lord. He doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't try to make it easy. He lets it be what it is. He lets it be the truth. And not only does David, not only is David's repentance not reluctant, it's also openly. He publicly mourns. He publicly prays. He refuses food or sleep. And he cries out to God. And it's not just for the life of the son that hangs in the balance, but it's also for the renewal of rightness with God. When we read Psalm 51, it's David's response to Nathan's proclamation of God's judgment. And it is a raw, real repentance. It is authentic. It goes to the core. And what it also does is it uncovers a secret and lays it out in the open. Repentance for us is bringing things out of the dark and into the light so that God can deal with them and so God can restore them. And if we aren't willing to do that, God really can't restore stuff like he wants to. If we want to keep it hidden away, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that we stand up in front of, you know, like everybody and say, I'm, you know, hi, my name's Travis and I'm a sinner and here's what I did today, you know. But, but how, how often do you just strive and struggle with your, with your sin in secret? How often do you keep it right here you don't ever talk with anybody about it I cannot tell you how much restoration has come even just in the little amount of time that I've been here at this church for like a year and a half now Okay. when I've had people in this congregation come and say I am, I am struggling with this and I need somebody to talk to and we gather a group small group of trusted people around that person and we talk and we pray and we spend time together I cannot tell you how that has transformed people and I cannot tell you how much when that stops happening or when that doesn't happen how much it stunts the growth and how much it stunts the transformation that can come with open repentance repentance can't be reluctant it also can't be private you have to invite others in and finally, I think the other thing about repentance that David gets is David moves forward with resolve. And this is huge. He grieves while his son is alive. 
he begs for forgiveness, but when he realizes that the cards are what the cards are, and this is the way it's going to be, he doesn't second-guess God. He doesn't go back on his repentance in the face of consequences. Instead, he makes an astounding phrase. My son cannot come back to me. So my only option is to go to him. Real repentance does not stay mired in regret. Real repentance does not balk at the consequences. It moves forward to resolve a renewed relationship with God. And I think it's these things, the openness and the humility and the resolve, those are what allow the narrative to still call David a man who's chasing after God's heart in spite of his sin. Because that's not the end of his story. And I think for us it means if we're going to experience true repentance in our lives, we've got to pattern ourselves in the same way. We can't rationalize or excuse ourselves. There's no room to justify or try to exalt our behavior, but there's also no room to stay mired in the guilt. There's also no, no room to stay mired in the regret of our sin either. We've got to be honest about our brokenness. We've got to be honest about our need for grace. But then in that forgiveness, we need to act, resolve to move forward and allow ourselves to be transformed by God. Because if we stay where we are, nothing's going to change because that's not repentance. Repentance is not continually beating yourself over the head with your sin. Resent repentance is a resolve to let God move you out of your sin and do whatever it takes to let him move you out of your sin, right? And again, where humanity is at its worst, we see God at his best because there's redemption there for David. And there's redemption there, even in the midst of all of this strife and striving. There's still redemption there. But that's not the only challenge for us in the passage, though, because, and, and I think here's where the preaching gets particularly hard. If it hasn't been already, you guys are like, it's just getting hard now? Okay. The author shows in the chapters that follow that God's forgiveness does not suspend or erase consequences for David. That death and that retribution, they still occur. And the unnamed son of adultery, he still dies. But that's just the beginning. We might be tempted to think that David gets off easy, but then God highlights the unintended consequences through Nathan. The sword of might and abuse of power that David uses to take Bathsheba and kill Uriah is going to hang over his family. Amnon, the firstborn heir of the throne, sees dad take and then later on he turns around and does the same thing to his half-sister Tamar with even more violence, with even more shame, with even more revulsion attached. And revenge for his sister Tamar fuels the death of Amnon at the hands of another of David's sons, Absalom, who will be the mirror of the younger David, but not the heart. He'll look like him. He'll have all the poise and the confidence of David, but he's not God's man. And he's an estranged son, an exile, an eventual traitor who will be a usurper to the crown and he will die at the hand of that trusted second-hand man, Joab, who has now been thoroughly corrupted by his orders with Uriah and now he's just cleaning up another mess and doing whatever it takes to keep David's throne secure. Ethics, morality, that's all aside now. Never again is David going to know the peace and the security that led to his complacency. His claim to the throne is going to be tenuous the rest of his life. It's going to keep him striving 
to maintain control. And it'll be the same way for his son Solomon and for Solomon's son Rehoboam and so on and so forth. In fact, there will never be a time where there is not a conflict in the Davidic line of succession until they are finally exiled hundreds of years later by Babylon. And the whole history reads that way because that sword doesn't pass. It hangs over the house. Now we may be thinking that the punishment's a bit harsh. I don't know. First I thought he got off easy. Maybe he doesn't. But see, God makes it clear as he has before. When our lower story of humanity moves out of harmony with God's upper story, the dissonance and the destruction that that creates is always going to be beyond the scope of our understanding. Not because God is mean, not because God is vindictive, but just because that sin is that pervasive and that destructive. And there is never a time where we can engage in moral failure or sin and say, well, it's not hurting anybody. Because we don't know. Because we have no idea. We can't say that. Because we don't know. There's no way we could. We aren't able to see sin and restoration and redemption and the eternity the way that God can. We can't say it's not hurting anybody. We have no idea. When we do that, we're not only seriously mistaken about the power and the character of sin, we're also allowing ourselves to be blinded by the fact that there's never a sin that doesn't infect others around us. From our deepest family relationships, from parent to child, to the people that we randomly intersect in our days, our sin or our salvation transfers to other people. Like pollen, like magnetism. You cannot help but rub it off on other people. It's either going to be good or bad. And for that reason alone, I think our earnest prayer like David should be create a clean heart in me, renew a steadfast spirit in me. Because that clean heart makes other clean hearts. And that polluted heart makes other polluted hearts. There's no, we're either growing or we're dying. And other people are either growing or dying with us. So what are we doing? I do want to inject a bit of hope into this, okay? I, re- I really do, okay? And, and, and even though we've got to really soberly wrestle with the truth and consequences of our sin the same way that David had to, m- the hope in this story is that not only does God not give up on David, he even acts redemptively through his marriage to Bathsheba, this thing that was so wrong, God is able to take and do something with and like I said, when, when we are at our worst, God is at his best. The promised child, the heir to the throne, the one who will build God's house is now born out of that union that was once shameful. And God delights in it rather than abhorring it. Nathan, Nathan gives the child the name Jedediah. It means beloved by the Lord. David and Bathsheba name him Shalaman, the child of peace. We'd know him better as Solomon. And he becomes a beacon of peace in the middle of the strife of David's later years. Solomon is actually going to be God's engineer for a time of unheralded peace in Israel. Um, I won't roll my sleeve up, but if you look at my forearm today, you will notice that there is a long white scar running right up here. Okay, And it is from when the porcelain of that toilet tank cut my arm open. It wasn't real deep, it, you know, I mean, I had to, I, 
I couldn't go to the emergency room. I had to fix my garage. Um, priorities. Right? But it's not a source of pain anymore, but it's a reminder, especially during the summertime, because you see the rest of my forearm get tan, and then I got this white thing, right? Okay? It's a reminder, and it's the same thing with our souls, and it's even the same thing with churches, I believe. It's the same with people, and it's the same with groups of people. Sin wounds us, and in the acceptance of truth and consequences, there is often pain involved because it wounds us. But when God's redemption and when true repentance are allowed to work in our sinfulness, those wounds do not stay wounds. Eventually they become scars. Wounds hurt us. Wounds weaken us. Scars, they don't hurt anymore, but they do tell stories. And they tell stories that aren't often exciting, but they tell stories so that we don't forget. So that when my kid goes, Dad, what happened to your arm? We're like, well, let me tell you a story. And with that story comes a reminder. I wonder, how, I wonder for how many of us, if we had the opportunity to sit down with David at the end of his life and say, David, what could you tell me about sin and temptation? He would go, okay. You see this scar right here? It doesn't hurt anymore, but it tells a story. See, because that one led to this one. And that tells another story. And that one led to this one. And that tells another story. And I wonder what he would say to you and I about sin and temptation based on his scars. Not that they hurt anymore, but because they tell a story. They define and they hone our character. And even in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, Bathsheba is called the wife of Uriah. That scar is still acknowledged, but it's shown for what it is because it's been redeemed and it's been made purposeful by God and his ultimate plan to save because the wife of Uriah is in the line of the savior of mankind. And out of this terrible, horrible thing, God uses it as a piece of engineering the redemption of all mankind. I cannot get past that any more than I can get past that the fact that this is atrocious. We live in the tension of both every day in our lives, guys. Sin is gross. God is amazingly redemptive with our grossness. you got to live with both. You can't just have one or the other, right? So today maybe you're being hit with the truth of the way your life is not aligning with God. And I really beg you today, be honest with him. And be honest with yourself. Engage in some repentance. Get people in your life that are going to help you with that. Right? Don't just try and do it by yourself. Bring in those trusted people and say, I want to be more like my Savior. Walk with me in this. Uh, today, maybe you're being you're dealing with struggling to find peace in the consequences, or maybe you're even doubting God's goodness because of them. And, and maybe those consequences aren't even yours. There were so many innocent bystanders that got hit with the consequences of David's actions. And you know what? Sometimes one of the biggest blocks to our faith is when we are caught up in the splash damage, when we are innocent bystanders and the corruption gets thrown all over us. And maybe you're still dealing with scars from all I can tell you is that 
the truth is is that God has both the power and the desire to redeem and transform that pain into peace just like he did with David and just like he did with the people that David hurt he is bigger than your consequences and while your consequences may seem long his love endures forever and your consequences won't and so I ask you to come now come to the table Come to the table of mercy. Come to the table of grace. Come to the table of redemption. Let's humble ourselves before God. Let's humble ourselves before his mercy that we may be made right, that we may be redeemed by his great love because his story and his love endure forever. Let's stand and let's